I'm interested in the interaction between human behaviour and algorithmic behaviour. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the whole story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. Welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey, Moritz. Hey, Enrico. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I ju I'm just back from Portugal. I had some real sun on the beach. Ah, now yes. my only goal is to quit working and learn how to surf. That's uh, my new <laughs> primary objective. Yeah. Same here, same here. <laughs> so maybe next year we do a surfing podcast. <laughs> yeah, I spent some of my summer in San Diego, so I'm, I'm all for it now. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So what's new for you? Uh, all good. Uh, yeah, the semester is, uh, we are in the... Um, kind of like middle of the semester now. I'm doing a lot of teaching recently and um, yeah, reasoning a lot about some of these fundamentals. I hope to publish mm -hmm. something soon. I, I have a few cool. reflections on that. Yeah. You wrote something on word clouds. It's it's uh, the year of the word cloud in an yeah. unexpected turn of <laughs> What's events. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah we just... used some in the in the election project. Now you write an article. It's been yeah. big on IEEE EVs. There were a few papers around word clouds. So there's a big uh, renaissance. Yeah, I don't right? know a resurgence of of uh, the revenge of word clouds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just pub published a um, kind of like. Uh, as Lynn Cherney said, non-academies <laughs> summary of our of our paper on on work clouds, and it's it's a post yeah. on Medium. And uh, yeah, if you guys are curious about that, you can read it. It's just a five minutes read or, yeah. or so. Yeah. And you found they can work if you use them right. Hopefully, they right? can work in some cases. Yeah. They are much better than I expected. I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> What is really interesting is that simple lists work really well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just use a list and, and people can, can get it. <laughs> See, the surfing career gets closer and closer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? I'm all for it. Let's do that. Yeah. How about you? What's going on? Yeah, things are good. We... Um, uh, published a, a, some documentation for a big tool I've been working on together with uh, Christian Lesser and uh, Studio Nand for yeah. Deutsche Bahn, the German railway company. Yeah, it's like I a super it. hardcore applied analytics tool, I lots of different that. views of the data, all web technology, like and and developed also in a very agile way, but lots of data and um, also prediction data, like machine learning data behind it. So I think it's a super exciting uh, project. Yeah, yeah, I love and it. I love it. Yeah, documentation is on my website. There's an article on Fasco Design. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm super happy about this project. And now it's actually in use and we get to see how people use it. We get to measure like results and, you know, how it affects workflows. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about something practical. Yeah, when, yeah. when you showed it to me the first time, you gave me a preview. And I was like, uh -huh. that's how visual analytics should be. <laughs> I really like that's, it. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe we should organize an episode around it. I think it's it's a really great. We could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we should. Yeah. It's. I think it's. It, it could become an interesting case study. Um, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, and Christian is, yeah. is kicking kicking ass. <laughs> Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> Just got a, a, our data stories visualization presented somewhere. What was that? In a, yeah, in a so there's an art of networks yeah. exhibition oh, in Boston. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's a recurring thing. And the visualization he did of our past 100 episodes um, was <laughs> uh, uh, selected to be shown there as, as an art uh, piece. So yeah, I think that's, that's cool. That's fantastic. So <laughs> shout out to Christian. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, um, one last thing before we start. Um, I think it's always good to remind everyone that our Patreon initiative is still on. So if you yeah. enjoy the show and you want to show your love, uh, you can donate some, some money. <laughs> uh, we are still trying to switch to this new system. We, we didn't reach our, our goal yet. So if you want to help us reach our goal, go on Patreon and yeah. And give us some some bling bling, <laughs> little one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would be much appreciated. And yeah, and thanks to all who already like uh, chipped in. And yeah, we haven't started really s switching over, so you're not being charged yet. It's at yes. the moment more a symbolic gesture, but yeah. we really appreciate um, all the contributions already. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think we can start with our episode. <laughs> it's been a long, long intro today. So today we talk about a topic that I'm so much interested in right now. <laughs> so we talk about visualizing Bitcoin. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Bitcoin. So in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about what Bitcoin is. And... Um, we have a, a special guest to talk about this, a person who's been developing together with other colleagues, a very interesting um, visualization of the, of the blockchain. This is uh, Dan McGinn from uh, London, uh, from Imperial College. And welcome, Dan. Hey there. How are you? Hey, Enrico. Hi, Maritz. I'm good, thank you. So we typically start by asking our guests to introduce themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, who are you? What's your background? Uh, what you're working on? What's your position? Sure, sure. So, um, slightly unusual to, to data science. I'm a, uh, for 12 years, I was a financial derivatives trader. <laughs> and then in 2012, 13, I got interested in Bitcoin during its first price spike. Um, trying to understand it, I was trying to read the source code, realized I couldn't, <laughs> came back to college to do a master's in uh, computer science, and I've, uh, I've stuck around since uh, using, uh, using Bitcoin as a, as a toy data set to, to kind of do some bottom-up experimental data science on. <laughs> awesome. So you got the Bitcoin fever a few, a few years back. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, I think when I started looking into Bitcoin, I was I was the first thing that I realized was like, oh, I'm too late. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> moving too fast. <laughs> it's the first it's the first thing that I realized is like, okay, I'm too late. But it's cool. It's really cool. For our listeners who might not be fully like um, aware of what Bitcoin yeah. and the blockchain is in detail, can you give a brief rundown just to just the basics? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's probably best described. In the original paper by Satoshi Nakamoto back in 2008, it's simply a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's got uh, a number of things that were, were added together. They were all invented at the time, but the way he combined them together has quite elegantly produced something that's now worth six thousand dollars a Bitcoin. 
I mean, the motivation behind it to start with was to to just digitally affect the cheap transfer of value mm-hmm. anywhere in the world 24-7 without any central authority or counterparty that could uh, censor anyone's participation. And uh, and it's uh, it's stood the test of time since 2009. Yeah, yeah. And what is the blockchain? <laughs> If you can explain it in a few so words. So the blockchain is one of the components of the Bitcoin system. <laughs> <laughs> I think people will try and dazzle you with blockchain and distributed ledger technology. <laughs> I, I, I just explain to people it's just a database. Right? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a novel and quite cumbersome database technology. Um, it's got uh, it's got some pretty elegant ideas in it. It's just a, a chain of uh, one block in the blockchain is a collection of transactions grouped together, and each block links to the previous block, so you can securely guarantee that the data is continuous and ordered and and immutable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is basically like the definite like source of truth of who has transferred money to whom, like at least the the identifiers of these people, right? Yeah, it's immutable, and and the the elegance is that everyone shares the same view of the data. Mm-hmm. There's no inconsistency in the data. Everyone's looking at the same same guaranteed data yeah. Yeah. without having that need for any central authority managing uh, participants' identification or granting access to the system. Right. The, only, uh, the only rules to play with the database are you've got to play by the rules. And if you don't play <laughs> by the rules, you can't play with the database. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and there's a whole protocol people can can play with, and it's open source, and you can yeah, there are lots of APIs that you can use just to connect with it and and work with it, right? Yeah. So when people say you own a Bitcoin, what do you actually own? You you own a, a single or a collection of write permissions on that database, mm-hmm. yeah, giving you the authority to transfer that value to someone else. Yeah, maybe we should briefly also mention what a miner is and what mining is. So there are different kind of actors in the network. Okay, so apart from the blockchain, the the, the, the Bitcoin system, if you like, is, is, is also a peer-to-peer network of computers all exchanging protocol conformant messages amongst themselves. Uh, and miners are simply specialist operators in that peer-to-peer network whose job it is is to uh, verify transactions, make sure that they conform to the protocol And uh, they race amongst themselves in a in a lottery-based competition to publish blocks to the blockchain. If they're the winner and they're, they're the first publisher finding a solution uh, to a block, then they're able to claim some bitcoins for themselves and, mm. and, and get compensated for the work that they do, having proved that they've done the work to validate the transactions. So they are kind of minting, minting bitcoins, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's how it's how uh, it's how the bitcoin economy is inflated, how bitcoins come into existence. Mm. But people argue that and I mean it's bitcoins famously got a, a geometrically reducing number of bitcoins yeah. that will ever be minted yeah. 21 million uh, by the year 2140 something. Yeah. Um, and you know people argue that that is is essentially deflationary, right? Because you've got yeah. a reducing number of bitcoins um And it leads to people hoarding them in anticipation of them becoming an ever more restricted supply and going up in value, which may explain the six thousand dollar price tag today. <laughs> yeah, it's a super clever technology. It's like it's just blew my mind when I when I when I looked into the details of how this works. And uh, I think the way this episode started, the idea is that me and Moritz were like, "Oh my God, is there is there is there any any good visualization of the blockchain or?" or 
Bitcoin in general. So we did a little bit of research and surprisingly, there's not much around. I don't know why, mm. but it's such a... There's cool a lot of real-time stuff, a lot of yeah. aggregated <laughs> numbers, but no patterns or no like structures, right? Yeah. And it's like... And it's such a fascinating data source. Like, how many transactions are there by now? It must be billions of transactions by now, right? <laughs> right now, I did. I did write that down. We got um, about 150 million. There were by block 425,000, yeah, wow. uh, which is where my database goes up to. Now we're at block 490,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you consider that each transaction has um, one or more inputs and one or more outputs. If you start looking at the whole transaction graph, it's it's over a billion nodes <laughs> yeah. to, to look at yeah. with some very interesting behaviors embedded in there. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's because nobody has done it before. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 massive. <laughs> yeah, I also played a, around with it a bit, and it's I think what's kind of difficult about it is you just get hashes of everything. Like you know, the people <laughs> yeah. who send money, it's just a hash, it's and just then a, the recipient a is long, just a hash. Yeah. You're like, where is this person? Who, who are they? You know, it's like it's very like cryptic and mystical, and at the same time, you feel like there's so much out there in in terms of things we could learn now, right? So I think there's an interesting tension. Yeah. So you you did a, a like a longer or a continuous project, I guess, working with this data and developing different visualizations and analytics tools. Can you tell us a bit like what the process there were was where how you developed these visualizations, what the main findings were maybe, and what you plan to do um, in the future? Yeah, so so my motivation really was was twofold. Uh, one was to just kind of bring Bitcoin to life for visitors that we've got to our data observatory facility, which is uh, 64 screens um, for visualizing large data sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, I'm, I'm I'm interested in the interaction between human behavior and algorithmic behavior. So if you think about the the, the stock exchange, it's uh, pretty much dominated by algorithms these days. Um, but there's no top-down view. There's no there's no radar mm-hmm. view on on how these algorithms are operating and how they're interacting and if if they're hitting resonant frequencies. So I figured if I could do a bit of um, kind of visual signal processing to start with to see if indeed the algorithms did have certain signatures and features that could be detected, then you can start to filter out the algorithms or at least spot the anomalous algorithms when they start to go wrong and try and avoid some of the flash crashy type stuff that we uh, we see. So that was the the motivation behind mm-hmm. it, um, and that was in the course. Was lucky that we were having this uh, data observatory being built at Imperial, um, and I figured uh, having a complex data set with this interesting behaviour that I suspected was going on would be a, a useful thing to to visualise. So, can you maybe describe some of the visualizations that that you created? I know it's it's always a little hard to describe <laughs> with words how a visualization looks like, but I think you have at least two or three different visual representations there that represent different different things. Can you walk us through these 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 three different screens that you have? The first and simplest is uh, I, I started trying to view the peer-to-peer network. I was trying to look at which computers were connected to which computers and who was originating transactions, who was mining transactions. And, and uh, I thought that would be an interesting thing to look at. It. As it turned out, it wasn't that interesting. But the first visualization I did was just a globe uh, geo-IPing the um uh, the locations of uh, the participating nodes in the network, the nodes that form the backbone mm-hmm, of the network. Mm-hmm. So that was a web crawler that just went around and uh, found the addresses of uh, of the computers that we could connect mm-hmm. to. 
typically that was uh, somewhere between 6,000 it's about 10,000 nodes uh, now which form the the backbone but there's a lot more computers participating which which are behind nets or or not accessible they can't make incoming connections so uh, it was just a, a way to show the distribution of the of the nodes the only interesting thing that really shook out of that was how uh, how difficult it was to see the concentration of nodes in China. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're behind the Great Firewall of China, so we had this big black spot on the mm. globe compared to really hot spots on the east and west coast of the United States and uh, in Central Europe. Yeah, and probably have a lot of like just correlation with where general yeah. internet usage and yeah, infrastructure exactly. is, right? And so, uh, uh, yeah, I can imagine it's kind of difficult to, to find uh, some new insights just from from that. Yeah, yeah, but we knew most of the activity was happening in China at mm-hmm. the time. We could just see that on the exchanges, but it was uh, it was surprising how few computers were actually forming the uh, uh, the the kind of public yeah, service yeah. infrastructure that forms the backwork mm-hmm. uh, backbone of mm-hmm. the network. Mm-hmm. So, would people use VPNs then, and or or is it just inside China that the traffic is happening? Or it's the fact that they don't accept incoming connections over ah, the okay. uh, the Great Firewall yeah, of China. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's all filtered uh, at the uh, the geographic boundary. Yeah, yeah. So then, uh, then when I started looking at the data that was bouncing around in the network, you started looking, which is predominantly uh, transaction messages. That's how uh, these write permissions are granted on the database mm-hmm. and how they're transferred to people. So I started looking at the transactions bouncing about, and it took me a while to figure that that was actually a, a transaction network. It was a graph. And as soon as I made that leap, then I figured that would be a great way to visualize the transaction data because you'd be able to see the structure of each transaction and also how they're associated with each other. Like who is sending how much money to whom? And are there some people who like send a lot of money to different people or is it always the same person? Stuff like this, right? Yeah, yeah of course, it's uh, it's kind of a pseudonymous um, facility. So it's not necessarily whom, but you're able to see repeated patterns of behavior, mm-hmm. which you can then infer are the same person. Right, right. So I thought that would be pretty cool and pretty uh, a pretty good way to manifest, to physically manifest the, uh, you know, 200 bytes of data for, for people to understand what was going on and how uh, active the system was and how value was effectively, mm-hmm. effectively transferred. Yeah, maybe maybe we should mention here that every transaction in... In, in the blockchain as a number of inputs and can also have a number of outputs, right? Yes, each each transaction has uh, inputs and outputs. You can think of the outputs as uh, as sockets. They're open sockets waiting for people to connect mm-hmm. to when, when you spend. And you spend them by creating some inputs where you cryptographically prove that you own the previous outputs. And in that way, that allows you to spend your Bitcoin. So you have this uh, never-ending chain of spends uh, from output to input, yeah, and that forms the transaction graph mm-hmm. and and quite a, an interesting and complex network full of um, evolving and, and different behaviors. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the patterns you found? Like, uh, yeah. or what was the overall shape of the network? Can you tell us a bit about like yeah, what you learned from from looking at the visualizations? Sure. So it was it was pretty pretty boring to start with. We could start to see some interesting things. You know how uh, the different wallets that people were using. You could start. You know. Traditionally, I mean, bitcoins are indivisible. You 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 destroy some bitcoins and create new ones with each transaction. So, if you're not spending the full amount of the bitcoins, then you need to receive some change back, and you create that change, and you typically take that back into your uh, into your into the same address. But then, obviously, that becomes it reduces your anonymization, and 
hierarchical deterministic wallets as they were known became uh, created where you would create a new address for each transaction and then you see this small change in uh, user behavior as people switch from a regular wallet to an HD mm-hmm. wallet. Uh, that's not very interesting. Um, what we started to see as, as, as I was still working on it, we started to see these incredibly connected and regular patterns forming um, on the screens as we as we were watching them, and I, to start with, I thought it was a coding error. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought some recursive uh, uh, link that I was I was creating, but uh, turns out that that wasn't the case. It's effectively what we were watching was a denial of service attack, mm-hmm. um, and that was uh, a whole series of algorithmically generated transactions with a very regular and high frequency repeating pattern, all. Uh, trading amongst themselves with very isolated components in the graph, simply to fill up data space on the blockchain to to effectively um, force up against a hard one megabyte limit that was been coded into the Bitcoin protocol for for some time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was uh, that was in the context of the time. There's a big debate about the scalability of Bitcoin and is it really a payment system and can it accommodate uh, a similar number of transactions as, as, as a regular payment processor like Visa or MasterCard. Uh, and there's two schools of thought, one's that it was, one that it wasn't. Uh, and if it was a regular payment service, then we would definitely need to increase the one megabyte limit because that forces a restriction on uh, the transaction rate to about three or four transactions a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was nowhere uh, going to scale unless that one megabyte limit was raised. At the time, in 2014, we were nowhere near that limit. Um, but someone took it upon themselves to uh, to attack the network with very small amounts of Bitcoin. These attacks were very cheap. They were only 8 to $10 uh, to fill up a block full of data to press upon that one megabyte limit. Mm-hmm. So it's basically about us gaming this this whole system and playing a bit with it as a... Yeah, like what, what can you do with the whole... Um um, transaction system that is set in place and all the, yeah, can, can you force it to behave in a certain way or not? Yeah. In the paper, so there's a, a journal article we will, of course, link from, from the blog post. There's a few other patterns, like there's, for instance, like a, a lattice-like structure or like a very, like, like a fabric almost of, of nodes and edges, which seems, if you look at it and you immediately see it's, ah, that's somehow constructed, right? It's not an organic emerging <laughs> yeah. thing, right? It's like somebody built that and, that's right, that, and and that's what's what's I think the the useful thing about it is is it's, it's even you don't have to be an expert in Bitcoin to know that mm-hmm. there's anomalous behavior going on here. <laughs> you can see it happen immediately and in real time, and you know that it's worth looking at. Right. I mean, the whole thing grows organically like a petri dish anyway as you watch it. But then when you see these worm structures starting, you're you're able to see them. You know, they they grow really quickly. Uh, they're very regular, mm-hmm. and you can even start to parameterize the algorithm that's underlying them. You may not know who's creating these these the, this denial of service attack, but you're able to see the basics of the algorithm that they're using to generate the transactions, and then you're able to see when the attacks stop, or when there are multiple attacks occurring at the same time with two different algorithms, or when they go to bed in New York time and come back in New York morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. It's like a little detective game you can play, right? So you see something interesting and you're like, okay, what, what could it be? Like, why would somebody do that? And, and who is it? You know, with which, uh, motivations? It's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always been described as pseudonymous and, 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 and it is because your identity is, is matched by a simple token. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when you know that all the data is public and you can see the data and you can see the relationships between the data, then you start to see exactly the problems of anonymity that Bitcoin doesn't guarantee. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when some one address is like de-anonymized, you can go back all the way and see all the transactions, of course. So it's sort of... Uh, all the way back to exactly. the beginning of 2009. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, one thing I like in the paper is that you have these images with... Yeah, like this one, initial parasitic worm transaction rate attack. And I like the way, because the, 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 in, in the visualization, the, the way that the network configures itself in a, in a sort of worm, right? So I was, I was wondering if you expected to see this kind of structures at the beginning or it just happened to, to be so, so visually salient, right? It really communicates that there's something going on there, right? So in the normal, so when nothing special is happening, you just see a kind of like traditional graph with some clusters here and there. But when this this attack is happening, you see these elongated, wormy shapes, right? Um, do you expect to see these kind of shapes or you just, at some point you were looking at the screen and it's like, whoa, oh my God, what, what is going on here? It was it was a question of luck and, and, <laughs> okay. and right place, right time, really. Yeah. <laughs> It was, um, it was, it was, it was, it was definitely not expected. Okay. I mean, I knew there was algorithmic behavior. The main point of, uh, or the only thing, you, one of the only things you could do with Bitcoin at the time was um, to interact with Satoshi Dice, one of the gambling websites, and that was just an uh -huh. algorithm that would, you know, give you a return or not. Um, so I expected to see some algorithmic behavior, yes. and I expected yeah. to see that forming different patterns to regular human activity. But then when this uh, denial of service attack started, we were quite lucky that we were able to see the attack evolve. Uh, we started to see when the uh, when the algorithm was operational, when it wasn't, when the algorithm had been tweaked to become more pernicious, yeah. uh, and when other actors came in to join the attack on the network using a different algorithm because we had the parasitic worm structure that we started see seeing at the beginning and then you could see an entirely different algorithm come in later on which we, we call the, the the cancerous tumor mm -hmm. because it would it would it was much more dense and much more pernicious than than the worm attack because it just took up so much space on on the blockchain in terms of the data capacity that it could tolerate that that it was it was it was very obviously a different algorithm and you've got to infer that that's a, a different actor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, does observing these behaviors, can, can it actually help figuring out ways to mitigate or even solve these problems? Or you can only observe them? I, th I think it can. I mean, since these attacks, the protocols do, or miners at least, have um, uh, enacted some heuristics which, which prevent these, these structures from forming now. They just limit the, uh, the number of transactions that can have happened in quick succession and be linked together with such high degree um, so what it does do is it allows you to start to filter um, filter on the and and reverse engineer how these algorithms were created and create the filters to 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 fight against them which is you know in some way it's not in the spirit of bitcoin because you're you're censoring mm -hmm. a user's yeah. participation in in the system um, but for the survival of Bitcoin, it's, it's, it's pretty necessary. Sure, sure. So maybe one thing that we didn't explain yet, and 
I think we should briefly mention it is that this visualization is a is a real time visualization is animated, right? Yes. And you are basically visualizing that what is called the mempool. Maybe you want to briefly describe that and explain what it is. So you're not visualizing the whole transaction history, right? You are only visualizing <laughs> what is happening in the last few. Uh, what is that? Hours or or so? Yeah. Well, what is the time window there? On 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 the mempool, it's 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 minutes. Minutes, um, okay. Just yeah. because of the, the the transaction rate that we're we're seeing, you know, we're seeing three or four transactions a second, so uh, it's very quickly gets up to two or three transactions, two or three thousand transactions a sec- uh, on the visualization. Um, the the mempool visualization visualization is real time and live, so you can start seeing these uh, patterns forming in real time, and you start to see the real time associations between transactions. But then we also started to apply the same visualization to the historic mm. data across the blockchain. So now you can look at any any block in time, again, looking back all the way in history to 2009 and seeing how within a particular block uh, these patterns uh, form. Yeah. And um, so all these visualizations are displayed in a large display wall. Can you Can you briefly describe the configuration, how this looks like? Yeah, so this was all in a box when I when I started this project. I knew we needed some content for this uh, 64-screen visualization <laughs> wall. It's uh, 64 screens. That's a nice problem to have. It's, nice <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like a kid with a new toy. <laughs> exactly. Like, what exactly. do we do with these 64 mm-hmm. screens? <laughs> Bitcoin, of course. Yeah. So it's... Um, it's uh, 16 columns of four screens arranged in a in a an arc, almost an all-encompassing arc. It's uh, 313 degrees around, um, and that gives us 130 megapixels of uh, screen real estate to to look at uh, big data sets and uh, presentations all in in one place. The main motivation behind it was such that uh, people it was a space where people could enter and collaborate and, and work together rather than huddling around a screen or zooming in and zooming out of data. We could just throw it up there on the 130 million pixels and uh, and walk around it and explore it in a, in a team fashion. Yeah. Looks really gorgeous, like the whole space. Yeah. It's, um, I'm very envious. <laughs> yeah, and we, we, we supplement it with some good sound. So we've got some data sonification projects going on. Uh, we've got uh, several uh, Kinect motion sensors around so we can have... Uh, uh, physical interaction with the data on the screens, and we've even got a portable EEG that we use to to explore how people's brains react to uh, different stimuli of course, and of uh, course. presentations <laughs> yeah. of their data. Yeah, can can you briefly describe how you interact with it? Because one thing I I always find really complicated with large screens is how how do you interact with them? Because if you if it's a touch screen, right, you need to get close, but you not, can no longer see everything because you are too close, right? That's right. But yeah. if you are far, now you have to use some awkward kind of interaction method. Some people use iPads, right, for indirectly. I, I think some people have like a reproduction of of the screen on the iPad so that you you interact with the with the iPad or some other people's use controllers so what what do you use there yeah you're right i mean um i wasn't involved in the design but i know uh, touch screens were explored as a, as an option and it was decided against just because simply there's too much space to touch <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you can see when you are too close you can see everything yeah. right? so that's yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah so um this particular visualization it had um 
uh, a tablet app um, uh-huh. which would allow you to uh, pull data off the screen and send data mm-hmm. back to the screen mm-hmm. and apply filters to the screen so you could filter by address or transaction size and then you could start to filter out some of the uh, some of the noise from the signal that you were interested yeah. in um, to be honest you know the, it wasn't very successful it was it was very yeah. very f- uh, finickety to yeah. use and difficult to to interact with so now it's pretty much a um, I mean, it's dynamic, but it's it's not very interactive. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I think that's a problem that ma- many people have. It's it's one of the unsolved problems. I think it's hard. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. And you yeah. have to really have to take the exact like measurements and like scales into account when when you design for for these things. And interaction is tough. But as you say, a lot of the typical interaction, like zooming and like overview <laughs> and detail and so on, can be solved then by just moving around and like yeah. using active perception, basically, right? Yeah, that's why we're. I mean, we are having some success with the uh, Kinect motion sensors. Uh-huh. Uh, and getting people go because it's a fun way to interact with the data and yeah. and it's now pretty accurate for the for the gross moves mm-hmm. like uh, zooming into the data mm-hmm. or, or scrolling the data you know people love acting as if they're in a movie uh, <laughs> but uh but yeah if you if you're constantly referring to a tablet then it kind of defeats the point of having 64 screens to be looking right, at right yeah interesting yeah yeah and so yeah, so you have this running there, and um, now you're monitoring the the blockchain, the Bitcoin space. What, uh, what's next for you, or what were the the biggest, let's say, unsolved challenges, or which types of things, like uh, yeah, uh, what's most interesting to you right now in that space? Can you tell us a bit? This was a a, a bottom up approach. It was, it was quite uh, speculative in in what we what we'd find in this visualization, mm-hmm. and and I think it's a, a very important function for visualization itself. As it can be one of the first stages is to just throw some kind of visualization at it and see what information is in your data and what is interesting to look at. So now we can take a step back and we can go do some numerical heavy lifting and apply some machine learning to find the patterns and the types of patterns that we know are mm-hmm. there and we know are interesting to to research more, and then. And then hopefully we'll come back to visualization at the end to to present the results once we've uh, done that um, intermediate step of of doing the maths on the uh, on the data set. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting approach. Like to first eyeball a few like interesting structures and then say to the machine, okay, can you find more of these worms or can you find more of these like interesting chains or something like this? Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's, we we had no ideas which which features would be uh, most important. Right, right. You know, we'd suspect that the reuse of the same address would be the most important feature to to get interesting behaviors and associate them together. But it turns out that it's not. It's actually for algorithmic behavior. It's just the degree of the transaction because mm-hmm. uh, because no one codes their algorithms to be stealthy. Mm-hmm. 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 And I think you you mentioned to me offline that you are also trying to look into other cryptocurrencies. Is that correct? Yeah. So this this visualization is directly applicable to other cryptocurrencies. Like um, Ethereum is is one we've looked at. I mean, there's been some research recently that uh, that uh, suspects fifty to sixty percent of all Ethereum transactions are are related or um, controlled by a single. Uh, a single actor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we can see that in when we just directly apply this same graph visualization to uh, to the Ethereum blockchain, mm-hmm. and, and that's a, it's a real thing. It's it's like the cancerous tumor <laughs> that we saw in the denial of service attack. It's it's just transactions in a very uh, isolated island uh, with few connections to to the mm-hmm. real um, 
transactions going on outside yeah. of it. And there's a whole like zoo by now of cryptocurrency, so there could even be a meta <laughs> yes. meta visualization task of visualizing <laughs> all these cryptocurrencies and comparing them <laughs> against each other because there's like millions of them by now. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a bit more work on on Bitcoin because this visualization is limited to just looking at um, the the transactions as they come in and the blocks in history. But we've taken a zoom out and started to abstract the data yeah. so that we can now actually take a, a, a visual look at the entire blockchain, which is you know, it's like 130 gigabytes now, and we can look at the associations between blocks simply as an adjacency matrix. It's quite a difficult job to get that data out, but once it's out, you start to see more interesting patterns of association and periods of time where where curious things are going on yeah. yeah i think it's such a great like case where data visualization is absolutely needed because you have this yeah you have this sort of contract system and the rule system and then people use it but you would you never see really what's going on it's just you know it's just messages being exchanged between computers but nobody can see what what is actually happening you know in, in such a cryptocurrency system unless you visualize it. And as you say, you wouldn't even know what to look for. If you were just to f look for specific patterns, you might have some guesses of, okay, let's look for a very asymmetric or very symmetric or very regular or very irregular um, transactions or something like this. But just to get a sense of what you, what you might find, you, you need to visualize. So I, th I think it's a great, great case for, for visualization. And because the data is so clean... Yeah. It's perfectly machine readable. Right? Everything's protocol conformance. Yeah. It's perfectly machine readable. No sanitization required, yeah. and you can see the uh, you can see the anomalous activities immediately. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very hard facts. Like <laughs> you know, no no dispute <laughs> about what's in the blockchain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a it's a great case for visualization, and I also played a bit with the blockchain.info API, and it's it's quite easy to get a like a, a live feed of all the unconfirmed transactions happening right now, uh, or getting the last block or yeah, block number X. It's very yeah. easy, and so um, I can only encourage people to play a bit with this data source because it's it's just fascinating to dip a toe into that data stream and just speculate a bit about what's going on there. It's quite quite interesting. Yeah, that's that's what I was I was about to ask then. So if any of our listeners wants to start playing with with this data, what would be the the easiest way to to start? Well, you're right. There are a ton of free data providers out there. Bitcoin.info mm -hmm. are our friends, and that's how I started uh, assimilating this data uh -huh. together. Um, but um, I, I would recommend that it's worthwhile digging into actual the actual protocol specification. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, these data providers uh, parse the data themselves, and they add metadata to it. It's, it's, it's quite interesting to see on, on a byte-by-byte -byte level exactly what's going on with the data. Mm -hmm. um, but these there, there are tools. These these kind of tools are lacking for the for the other cryptocurrencies. We've only started looking at Ethereum recently, um, but you know Zcash, which is you know um, a lot more anonymous, if not perfectly anonymous, mm -hmm. than, than than Bitcoin. It'd be an interesting case to just to see what's going on there and see see uh, see what algorithmic behavior is going to be obvious. Okay, well, thanks so much. That's that's so fascinating. I'm I'm really glad that somebody decided to visualize the blockchain. I'm I'm blown away by by the old system and by these visualizations. I I really encourage the listeners to yeah, to to take a look at our blog post and see the images because they are they are stunning. And also, I think we're going to post um a link to uh, you also have a video that shows the how these um 
um, real-time visualization works and how it looks like in your in your I think you call it data observatory this old system of of big screens that's right yeah. and uh, yeah it's really cool it's a great example of of really really interesting and useful visualization um, thanks so much then for coming on the show you're welcome thank you for inviting me thank you thank you bye bye cheers bye 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 Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the whole story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's q-l-i-k dot d-e slash data stories.